Well, good morning, New City. Glad to be with you today or whenever you may be watching or listening to this. Uh, We are beginning a brand new series called Jesus Over All, and we're going to be walking through the New Testament book of Colossians. Uh, But before we get there, I want to begin this morning with the story of how I proposed to my wife, Christina. Now, Now, some of you might be really excited to hear this. The other half of you might be like whatever about it, but let me just share this with you. I am not a super romantic guy, but I will say I did this one particularly well. And so what happened was Christina and I, again, if you're not familiar with our story, she dumped me twice. So we started dating our freshman year of college. Uh, That summer, she broke up with me and we got back together, you know, in the fall of our sophomore year. And then that summer, she dumped me again, got back together at the beginning of our junior year, the fall of our junior year. And I thought, well, she keeps dumping me every summer. So I might as well marry her so she can't actually dump me again. And so we were planning uh, to get married in between our junior and senior year of college. And so she knew the proposal was coming. And so it was like, how do I uh, make this uh, unexpected, even though she knows it's coming? And so it was January. It was the beginning of the year. School had not quite yet started back up. And so she knew it was coming. And so I was planning this nice date. And she, in, in the day before, it was a Wednesday night, uh, the day before the date, I said, oh, actually, there's a UNCW basketball game, which is the school we went to, and I'm a big college basketball fan. So I'm a big uh, college basketball fan, so let's just go, let's go on Friday instead. And so she obviously is thinking, well, she wasn't going to propose if he was going to change it last minute. Uh, and so, uh, of course, the whole time it was planned for Friday. So we go to this restaurant. It was like a fondue place where you, you know, put the meat in the boiling pots of water, and they have cheese and dessert and fancy stuff. And so we go there. And as we're leaving, I go to the bathroom and I text her friend and I say, call her in five minutes. And so we went to this restaurant and then the plan was to go to a movie. And so we're driving uh, to the movie theater and all of a sudden, Christina gets a phone call from her coworker at the church that she was on staff with at, at the time, frantically freaking out and saying that she had locked herself in a room at the church and asked if Christina could come and let her out. Now, Christina felt really bad. She's like, well, we have to go because my friend's locked in the room. Uh, now, she wasn't actually locked in the room. There was a, in the back of the auditorium is where they would count the money and the finances and things like that. And so you needed a key fob to get in. And some people thought you could get locked in there when you couldn't. And so she called Christina pretending to be locked in the room. And so we had to drive by our campus uh, where Christina lived so she could get her key to get into the church. And as we're leaving the campus, again, Christina's apologizing. She's like, I know we have to get to the movie. Of course, for me, I know what's going on this whole time. And so as we're leaving campus, I really had to go to the bathroom. Now, this part of the story is not relevant to what I'm trying to share, but for the guys, I think you'll enjoy this. I had to go to the bathroom really bad. And so I told Christina, let's pull over. I need to pull over and go in the woods. And she's thinking, well, why don't you just wait till we go to the church so that you go to the bathroom, I'll let my friend out. Of course, I couldn't do that because I was going to be proposing at the church. And so we pull over, I run into the woods, go to the bathroom, get back in the car. Christina's like, that was weird. I'm like, don't worry about it. We go to the church, uh, we get in there, we walk into the auditorium and on the auditorium, there's uh, flowers, there's candles, there's my piano, there is a painting we had a friend uh, make for us. And so very clearly, this is about to go down. Well, she sees that, takes a right, and goes immediately to the room that her friend was supposedly locked in. She opens the door. She finds her friend that is not actually in there. And then I'm like, hey, look at the stage. Like, look at the stage. And then she realized, oh, <laughs> this was probably, you know, our friend was never locked there to begin with. And so we go to the stage. I play her two songs. Uh, and, and, and on top of that, the year before her birthday is in January, I gave her a journal and I said, and I took it back and I said, I'll write in this for the next year and then I'll give it to you next year. And so she broke up with me again that summer and I still wrote in it. 
Okay, so bonus points there. I still wrote in it. And my last entry to her was when I proposed uh, in that January, a couple of weeks before her birthday. So again, not super romantic, but that was one time that I did things really well. Now, why do I share that story is that Christina was worried, right? She thought we had this plan. We were going to go to dinner and then a movie. Uh, but that was obviously uh, changed when her friend called. Now, she was worried. Why? Because Christina wasn't in control. She didn't know what was going to happen. She felt bad for her friend. Of course, I knew what was happening, knew what was in control. And so I wasn't worried at all. And I share that story because this is the question that we're going to be looking at as we begin our time in Colossians this morning. And that's this, how can we face, or how can we experience joy in hard times, right? Can we experience joy in hard times? And what does that actually look like? Again, you're watching this from your home, right? We can't actually gather physically. You can't go do many of the normal things that you can do because of the coronavirus. And so we're all experience hard times, all of us. So how do we experience joy? Is that even possible in the midst of all of this unknown? And so we'll be in Colossians chapter one this morning. I wanna give you a little bit of a background and context. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and flip there. Maybe you got one on your phone. The scriptures will be on the screen as well. But let me give you some context behind what's happening in this letter as we get into it and looking at this idea is that can we experience joy? So we've entitled this series, Jesus Overall, because Colossians is all about the supremacy and the kingship and the lordship of Christ over everything, even in the midst of hard times. And so the context of this book is Paul is writing this letter from jail in Rome. So you probably are not watching this or listening to this from jail, but all of us are at home a lot more than we would like. And yet Paul actually wrote some of his greatest works of the New Testament while in jail. So just because we are in a situation we may not like, not able to do uh, some of the things that we would like to do, it doesn't mean that God might is not up to something. So he's writing this letter because Epaphras has come to visit him. Now, Epaphras uh, originally heard the gospel from Paul, and he actually went back to Colossae to plant the church that Paul is writing this letter to. So, so Epaphras comes to Paul and basically explains to him that there is some dangerous false teaching uh, going around in the church, uh, and Paul is trying trying to write to the Colossians to encourage them to continue even in the midst of difficulties to grow in spiritual maturity and their love for Jesus. Now there's debate about exactly what was going on, uh, what was maybe the, the false teaching that was going on. It could have been led by a leader that was rising in the church. We're not exactly sure, sure but they are likely mixing some pagan non-Christian ideas and some Jewish ideas, and they were losing sight of the gospel. And so Paul writes this letter uh, for Epaphras to take back to the Colossians for them to refocus and re-engage what is actually important. And so here's what it says. Uh, he writes this about 62 AD from jail. It says this in verse one. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will and Timothy, our brother. So again, real quick, Paul, if you're not familiar with his story, he's one of the foundational leaders of the early church, wrote about two thirds of the books in the New Testament. He was a uh, Jewish religious leader before he had a radical conversion uh, to Christianity, which you can read about in the book of Acts. And so he's an apostle. Now apostles were people who only lived in the first century, who had experienced the risen Lord Jesus after his death and burial, and had been specifically commissioned by him uh, for the work of ministry. So for example, the 12 disciples, 
They were apostles. Paul uh, actually never saw Jesus in the flesh before Jesus ascended back to heaven. But again, his conversion story is that Jesus appears to him when he was on the road to go persecute more Christians, and he was called specifically by God. So he has a weight and an authority behind what he is saying. So Paul, the apostle, uh, by the Christ Jesus, by God's will, and Timothy, our brother. Timothy was one of his apprentices, a young pastor, and Timothy may actually have been the one who wrote this letter as Paul was dictating to him what to write. So this is Paul writing to the Colossians. Verse two, to the saints in Christ at Colossae, who are faithful brothers and sisters, grace to you and peace from God, our Father. So he's writing to the saints, which are the believers in Colossae. Now this would be in modern day Turkey. And just so you understand, if you're not familiar, that everybody who is a follower of Christ is technically a saint, right? It's technically a believer. And it's not because you are a great person or because you try really hard. It's because of what Christ has done for us, that he adopts us and gives us his inheritance, that all of us who are followers of Jesus are righteous and pure and holy, not because of us, because of him. And so he's writing to the saints, to the believers in Classe, And here's what he says, starting in verse three. He says, we always thank God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. For we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. In other words, Paul is grateful for their faith in Jesus and their love that it has produced. In other other ways, as I read this, I think of New City. I think of many of you about how grateful I am for all that God has done in our church and how even in the midst of all this uncertainty and unknown, how so many of you are reaching out and looking to help not just fellow believers, but other people in your community. So he's writing to people like you and me. Now, he's encouraged by their faith. And to be clear, he's encouraged specifically by their faith in Jesus. Not that they just have faith, not that they might be spiritual, but not religious. It's kind of a a, a coined phrase that we often say, or often hear people uh, say in our culture, that not that they are people of faith, but they're specifically people of faith in Jesus. Because as we're going to see, following Jesus, contrary to what some might think or believe, is not about having blind faith. That following Jesus is rooting our faith in true historical realities. Realities like the resurrection of Christ. Realities like Jesus is Lord over everything. That we're not supposed to go into our faith just hoping it's true beyond all doubts that are telling us maybe we shouldn't believe it, but that we are grounding our faith in the reality of things that are actually true. There's a quote by Mark Twain that says this. It says that faith is believing what you know ain't so, right? In our culture today, we sometimes make faith or belief synonymous with things that aren't actually true, and we just want them to be true. And that's not what Paul is saying here, right? Paul is not saying believe something that's not true because it makes you feel better. Believe something that's actually true. Like, so for example, right? I am a massive college basketball fan. This is supposed to be the best time of the year. And what happens? March Madness gets canceled pretty much the day before it was really actually going to begin. Right now, I could say, well, I just believe that they're going to play the games anyway and they're going to start the tournament again. Well, that's not actually going to happen, right? I can have faith, but that's something that's not actually true. And sometimes, I think sometimes we can view faith as something that we just believe even though it's not true. And what Paul is saying is, no, 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 don't do that. Ground your faith in things that are actually true, that we don't believe in things that aren't true to make ourselves feel better. 
We believe in things that are actually true and it impacts how we live. If you contrast that, I love what Tim Keller says. He's a pastor and author uh, and theologian in New York City. He puts it this way, that it's not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that saves you, that actually saves you. Strong faith in a weak branch is fatally inferior to weak faith in a strong branch. And his point is, no matter how much faith you have in something, if it is not true, it cannot save you or it cannot do for you what you would want it to do, right? And and the contrary, even if you just have a little bit of faith in something that is actually true, uh, the resurrection, the death, the burial of Jesus Christ and what he has done, even if we just have a little faith at times as we're wrestling, wrestling with doubts and questions, it's not, the, it's not the strength of our faith, but it's the object. And so as Paul is saying that you and I want to root our belief and our trust in things that are actually true and things that are actually true. And so all that to say, here's the point as we begin our series in Colossians that I want us to see, that faith in the wrong thing will not save you from your fears. The point here is that faith in the wrong thing will not save you from your fears. What is happening right now, especially with the coronavirus and the pandemic and everything changing and not being as we would want, right? If we trust and believe in things that can't actually save us, we should still, will still be fearful. Now, let me say this. I'm not an expert. I don't know how to, not a scientist. I'm not a medical doctor. We should absolutely respect our governing authorities and do what they ask. But we, ha- we at the end of the day, you and I are not God. At the end of the day, you and I cannot control this virus of where it will spread and what it will do. And so if we put all of our faith in, that, in our governing officials or in our social distancing, we aren't actually guaranteed that we're still going to get the results that we want. Or if we put all of our faith in maybe disregarding what they're saying and go along with our lives. Now, maybe you switch this, maybe not just to the coronavirus, but anything in our lives. We put our faith in things that can't actually save us, uh, that we will actually still be fearful. We actually need to trust and, and put our faith and belief in the God who is actually in control and hope and, and look forward to, uh, for the day for him to continue to work, even in the midst of hard times. Again, faith in the wrong thing will not save you from your fears. In other words, void of Christ and his lordship over our lives and the world, you and I should be afraid. And again, not just because of this virus, I think this virus is opening us up to the fact that we're not in control, but anything in our life. Like we're not in control of anything in our lives. And so if we do not wanna live in fear, we have to make sure that our faith is rooted in something that is good and loving and gracious and kind towards us. I like to think of it this way. Uh, Some years ago, I had a friend, uh, him and his wife, they had a couple of kids and he was a groomsman in the wedding. Uh, they, were, they had a wedding coming up that was out of town. It was a couple of hours out of town. And, uh, you know, so they had to rearrange childcare. You know, of course he got the suit and everything to, to go with the rest of the groomsmen. And so they go out of town. It's the weekend of their wedding. It's a Friday. They get to the hotel. There's no one else there. And so he just assumes that they're the first ones there. So they go to the room. An hour or two goes by and no one else has arrived. So all the, the wedding party is staying at the same hotel, some of the family, because uh, they're making a, a weekend out of it and no one else is there. And so he goes to his phone to check and see maybe they checked into the wrong hotel. They, they got reservations at the wrong hotel by chance. He's not quite sure. He finds out that the wedding is actually the following weekend. So the wedding isn't the weekend that he had planned childcare for, uh, him and his wife to get away, all the moving parts to get off of work. It was actually the following weekend. Now, why do I share that story? 
because he was ready to go. He had uh, bought his, his suit, right? He was prepared for a wedding that wasn't actually happening. And it's the same thing for us today. If we place our faith and trust in anything that is not actually ultimately in control over all things, which is Jesus, then we could be the best dressed to a wedding. But if the wedding isn't happening, it doesn't actually matter, right? Faith in the wrong thing will not save you from your fears. And that is what Paul is getting at. Remember the gospel, place your faith in Jesus because when life is hard and we are not in control, if we don't wanna live full of fear, we have to actually make, our, make sure our faith and our trust is in the right thing. And so Paul continues by saying this in verse four. He says, for we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and a love for all the saints because of the hope reserved for you in heaven you have already heard about this hope and the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. In other words, he said, the sign of your faith is not just that you believe intellectually in Jesus, but that your love to the saints, the fellow Christians in your community is a sign that the gospel has actually taken hold of your heart. See, what had happened here is that the people in the church in Colossae did not just care for their family or their friends, but they also began to care for all of the believers in the church, people who they might've politically disagreed with, people who they might've never spent any time with before hearing the gospel and experiencing the love of Jesus. So the gospel had changed how they interacted with one another and they had found something. Here's why this had done this, because they had found something that united them and compelled them to love. They had found something that was more important than their political affiliations and their jobs and careers that they might have uh, to their own personal preferences. They had found something greater that allowed them to unite around the cause. They'd found the love of Jesus. Now, now we see this happen from time to time, right? When people find things that they unite them together. So for example, our government officials, while maybe not as much as we would still like, they do seem to be working with each other more than they were, let's say a month ago. Why? Because survival is more important than partisanship, right? Survival is more important than partisanship. So right now, at least a little bit, our government is working together maybe somewhat more than they normally would because they had found something that's more important, right? Fighting this pandemic is more important than partisanship. Now, here's the reality. Once things go back to normal, I think most of us don't have high hopes that they'll continue to work together. And so maybe uh, certain situations in your life might unite us, maybe going to a sporting event and having people that like the same team might unite us. But the difference between those examples and the gospel is that the gospel had changed their everyday life forever, not just for a season, not just for a day, not just for a game, but every day as they went and as they lived, they had found something that had radically changed how they interacted with other people. They had found the gospel. The gospel is what compelled them to love. What is the gospel? That God, the king of the universe, demonstrated what does it mean to be loving and gracious and kind, that he stepped into human history to a world that had rejected him, a world that had fallen short time and time and time again to give us the love, grace, and mercy that we could not ever experience or attain on our own, that Jesus defeated sin and death, that he is victorious over evil, over darkness, over pain, over suffering, and it is through his sacrifice that anybody, that you and I, in the midst of our blowing it, in the midst of our getting it wrong, in the midst of our doubts, can experience the love and the grace of God, not because of us, but because of him, as we say it often here at New City, that because of Jesus and what he has done for us, if you are in Christ, you have nothing to prove 
and you have no one to impress. And because of that, it frees us up that if we see that this God, this King of the universe loves us so much that he's giving us grace and forgiveness, that although we are still human and are not perfect, that's why he came, it gives us the example of what does it look like for us to go and extend the same grace for others. Again, the mission at New City Church is to help uh, as many people as possible, right? Meet Jesus and grow in a relationship with him. And that happens when people experience the love and grace of God through how we treat and love one another. The gospel, in other words, is how you and I can face hope or have hope in the midst of this COVID-19 coronavirus. The gospel is that we are not promised that everything in this life will go okay, but one day Jesus will return and defeat sin and death for uh, all eternity. In his kingdom, everything will be put right. And so we can face uh, these uncertain times with hope and even with joy because we know who ultimately is in control. And the gospel is what makes that possible. The gospel is what makes that possible. And so as we continue, here's what it says next in verse six. He said, it is bearing fruit, talking about the gospel here, that it is bearing fruit among you since the day you heard it and came to truly appreciate God's grace. You learned this from Epaphras, our dearly dearly loved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. And he has told us about your love in the spirit. In other words, what they're seeing here is that the, G- the resurrection of Jesus that's taken place about 30 years before this letter was written uh, had already taken hold of not just the Colossians, but people all over much of the known world at the time, all over the Roman Empire. And this is actually quite uh, miraculous that in just 30 years time, uh, this Messiah from nowhere is radically changing and the message of the gospel is being spread. Remember, there's no social media, there's no internet, Uh, The vast majority of people cannot read or write and uh, the Christian religion was either actively suppressed or at at least uh, thought was weird and ignored in some parts of Rome and then other parts of Rome where it's actively people were being jailed and some people were even being killed. And yet in spite of all that, this message of hope is being spread. Why? Because again, Paul's saying, root your faith in something that's historically accurate and true that Jesus actually did what he claimed to do. And so he's encouraged uh, by their faith that they had learned from Epaphras. And I think one of the things that we can see here is this, that God uses ordinary people for his extraordinary mission. Other words, as we see that Epaphras had taken the gospel, we don't know a lot about Epaphras in the New Testament, but, but all, by all accounts, there's nothing special about him. He was simply a guy who happened to hear the gospel first from Paul, realized the good news of Jesus needs to be told to as many people as possible, brings it back to Colossae and starts to share with those the good news that he had received and believed. And so a church began. God uses ordinary people for his extraordinary mission. And we talk about this from time to time at New City and the degree to which we believe this truth is the degree to which we will have an impact on our community, right? It's easy to kind of assume that people that are doing big things for God must be extra gifted. They certainly don't have the normal sin struggles that everybody else has, that they must be in a special category of human. And yet what we see all throughout scripture is God uses broken people who simply make themselves available to God. And again, even in these times, Paul, again, is writing this letter in jail. He's not able to do a lot of the normal things that he was wanting to do, and yet God was still using him. And so for us and for you and for me, we need to remember that it's not the special people, but it's the 
ordinary people who make themselves available. Now, you might be wondering, how do we do this right now, right? How do we be on mission for God right now? The, the two things that come to mind is this for me. One is that we can pray. And like, again, not actually just say or think about it, or like actually get on our knees, spend time literally in prayer, not just generally for our nation and for the world, but for specific people that you know. And secondly, I think one of the best things that you and I can do is to be people of hope in this time, people of hope. And so that we would not be a people of fear, that we would not be people that are spreading fear, but as we uh, talk with people, text with people, call with people, however, we're still connecting with one another, our coworkers, our friends, that people would, would, know, would notice and, and see that we don't have the same fear as other people. Like here's, here's just practically and full disclosure, I could be completely wrong on this, right? All of us are checking the news probably a lot, at least a lot more than we typically do. I know that I'm on social media way more than I typically am. What I don't need is more people sharing articles about the coronavirus and how many people are gonna die. That's not what I need. What I need is people to, to rise up and be encouraging and hopeful. Like I can find all of those articles and I'm not saying don't share them because I, it's helpful, but I think all of us know that we're reading all this stuff on our own. What we need is not people spreading fear, uh, we need people spreading hope. I think one of the best things you and I, for, that God can use us in extraordinary ways right now is to be people of hope and encouragement to those in need and those who are having fear. Again, God uses ordinary people for his extraordinary mission. And with that, here's what Paul says in verse nine. And he's gonna talk about this prayer that he has for the Colossians as he begins his letter. Verse nine, he says, for this reason, because the gospel is being spread among them, and also, since the day we heard this, we haven't stopped praying for you. So when Paul hears that there's some false teaching coming into the church, he's still praying for them. We are asking that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will, of God's will, in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Why? So that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God. In other words, Paul is praying for the gospel work in Colossae to continue and for the believers to be encouraged. He's praying for them what? For them to be filled with the knowledge of God and God's will for them. And then he wants them to continue to walk in that love, in that knowledge and bear fruit. In other words, that this is not just an intellectual exercise for Paul. He's not saying, you know, maybe in our context, you know, read your Bibles and learn a lot about Jesus. He's saying, do that but then use that knowledge to grow closer to Jesus and to love other people the same way that Christ has loved you. It's not just an intellectual exercise. It's something that's practically relevant to their lives. And the problem is when we restrict following Jesus to just learning about the Bible, we run into the problem that I think all of us experienced when we were in school, right? We all had classes and things and materials that we had to study where we, were, we would ask the teacher, what does this have to do with everyday life? Right? And so it would be hard for us to like actually study and read and do the assignments that we know were practical to absolutely nothing that we were going to do. It was hard, right? Because we're like, this doesn't matter. What does this have to do with anything? And Paul is saying, what the gospel has to do with you is everything. It's not just intellectually knowing who Jesus is, but it's allowing him to change your heart and my heart so that we can spread this love and this hope with others. We can share this love and this hope in other, in other words. In other words, as we grow with the knowledge of God, and because he's specifically talking about faith in Jesus, here's what we see. That faith is not objective, or sorry, faith is objective, not subjective. Faith is objective, not 
subjective. He's wanting them to grow in their knowledge of Jesus. Again, not that they would be a people who are spiritual, but not religious. Not that they would find whatever, you know, religion or spirituality or whatever uh, feel good thing that they can think of that makes them feel better. No, he's saying specifically in Jesus. He's objectively saying that this, that Jesus, the gospel is what saves us. The gospel of what Christ has done is what gives us hope. And there is nothing else that can actually do it. It, it reminds me, uh, it's talking specifically about having faith in Christ. And I think all of us have a friend or someone we know. If you don't have someone you know, this might be you that I'm explaining. So just, just saying. But uh, you know, all of us have a friend that, that has an answer to everything, right? Like one of my best friends in college, one of my roommates, he was one of those guys that had an answer for everything. Like anytime someone asked a question, he could, he could have no idea about the subject matter, but he just felt like he had to give an answer. And I remember still specific to this day, one day we were in our apartment, we had some friends over and somebody asked a question about music. They're asking about timeless signatures and keys, some music theory question. Now I grew up playing the piano. Uh, I, I went to school as a music major before I switched to religion. And so I'm not like some amazing musician at all. In fact, I hardly play anymore, but I do know good about, a bit, good bit about musical theory and things of that nature, certainly more than maybe the average person would. And my friend, my roommate, he played saxophone a little bit. He played in band a little bit in college. And so he knew some, or sorry, in high school, he knew some, but not, not as much as me. And I shared that because this person asked this question and immediately before I could answer, cause I'm like, I, I mean, I'll give you an answer. I don't really care. He jumps in right away, gives him an answer that was completely wrong. Like, a hundred percent wrong. And it was funny because knowing him, I knew normally he gave answers to things he probably didn't know the, the real answer to. But as someone who knew the right answer, hearing someone share the wrong answer was fascinating. And what Paul is saying is I'm praying for you to grow in your knowledge of Jesus and the gospel so that when somebody is saying things that are not true, you actually can know what's true and what's not, right? The only reason I knew that my friend was giving wrong information about music and music theory is because I actually knew what was true. And so he's saying, remember, following Jesus, you don't have to do X, Y, and Z for God to love you. You don't need to do certain things or restrict yourself from certain things in order for God's approval. You need to believe and trust in Jesus and allow Jesus to change your heart. And so even though you and I are living in difficult times and we can't gather physically and things are hard, it's not a reason. It's not a, it doesn't mean that we still can't grow in our knowledge of the Lord and grow closer to him because faith is objective, not subjective. And if we wanna make sure we're growing closer and spreading the love of Jesus, we have to actually know what the gospel is. And so with that, here is how we'll end our first part of Colossians. I'll start from verse nine and read through verse 12. Again, this is Paul's prayer for them. He says this, for this reason, uh, since, we, uh, since the day we heard this, we haven't stopped praying for you. We are asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, right? So that you might walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God. Verse 11, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience, joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has enabled you to share in the saints' inheritance in the light. In other words, Paul's prayer here to the Colossians is also very applicable to us. 
right? He's praying, and, and, and really for all believers of Christ, for us today as well, that we would be strengthened, right? That by God's power, that we, that you and I would have endurance in this hard time, that you and I would have patience, and that in the midst of all of it, we would joyfully give thanks for whatever God might be doing. Now, how and why, right? How can we actually give thanks? Why? What does he say? Because we are sharing in the saints' inheritance and the light. In other words, that all the riches and goodness that Christ has coming to him when God reestablishes his kingdom are coming to us, not because of us, but because of him. And as we talk about, I mean, what does it look like? And is it possible? Can we face difficult times with joy? Here's what we need to know. And here's the point as we come to an end here. And that's this, that only in Christ can we face difficult times with joy. Only in Christ can you and I actually face difficult times with joy, right? There is no other way for us to actually do this. Otherwise, we have no idea what's going to happen and we are not in control. This does not mean that we are necessarily happy when things go the way we don't want them to go or that, they are, 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 that we are excited when things don't go the way that we don't want them to go. But in the midst of all of that, we can experience joy. Why? Because we know who's in control, And if we use this time well, we can use this time to allow us to grow closer to Jesus. It reminds me of, I think of a couple years ago, I was in a a wedding with one of my best friends growing up. Uh, Him and his family are from India. And so they they moved to the States either right after or right before uh, he was born. And an Indian wedding is awesome, especially if you're part of the wedding party. So it's a three-day event. I mean, it's a massive. It's Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Uh, you don't go to everything. The family's really the only people that go to everything. But if, if you're in the wedding party, you go to most things, right? So I was there Friday night and pretty much all day Saturday. And part of the thing that's really cool about the wedding was that the groomsmen and the bridesmaids also, they had a dance. So the groomsmen had a dance that they did together with the groom and the bridesmaid had a dance that they did together with the bride. Now you actually, actually, the thing about it is you have to actually learn how to do the dance. And so they like sent it via video, what we we're going to do. And then we spent Friday and a bunch of the day Saturday, like practicing it together. And the point though, is that you can become overwhelmed, right? You can become overwhelmed thinking, well, I've got to make sure I get the dance right. I can't mess the moves up because all these people are watching. And the, the reality of the situation is that when it comes to actually perform the dance, it's not about it being perfect. It's not about getting all the moves right. It's about enjoying one another in the celebration what's happening. And having a dance that you're doing together is one way that you can enjoy it, right? So what if creating a memory of a time that we did this thing together? And I share that as we talk about how only in Christ can we face difficult times with joy, is that in this moment, it's not that we have to read our Bible more because we're scared or we have to pray more or we have to do these things, that God's inviting us to do these things to experience Him. Right? Sometimes it's not easy. Sometimes it takes work. Sometimes following Jesus means doing things, not doing things that we might want to do. But in the end, it is for our joy. It's not about being perfect. It's about experiencing who he is. Only in Christ and what he has done can you and I not only face difficult times and get through them, but experience joy because of the truth of who he is. Only in Christ can we face difficult times with joy.